So a few nights ago, Caroline spoke about cultivating a set of 10 skillful qualities of heart and mind known as the 10 parami. And these are 10 aspects of character that can be developed as very powerful supports for the deepening of our meditation practice. And in turn, our meditation practice strengthens these qualities so that they become valuable resources for navigating the challenges of daily life. And we've already touched into quite a few of these qualities because they're woven throughout the Buddha's teachings. And in a minute, I'll give you a full list of what the ten are as a reminder. But first, I'd like to give just a little bit more context and a suggestion of how we might practice with them, if that's of interest. So traditionally, this word parami is translated as perfection. But for some of us, this word can be a bit off-putting because I know for myself, it can be easy to hear a list of 10 qualities that we're supposed to perfect and feel burdened or inadequate. Hearing the list as just another set of ways that we're not good enough, that we don't measure up, that we have to improve. But one of the things that I've appreciated about the parami is that they're qualities that we all already have to some degree. And when we turn our attention towards them, just that action of turning towards them of acknowledging them in ourselves, that helps them to begin to get stronger. So rather than perfection, I think of the parami as qualities that we can bring forward, that we can polish rather than perfect. So just as we might uh, polish a piece of timber, varnish like the floor here to bring out the beauty of the grain of the wood, just like we polish rocks to reveal their color and luster and smoothness. And sometimes on retreat, it can feel like we're in one of those rock tumblers that they use to polish semi-precious stones. So I understand with that process that we put in the rough rocks. We could think of that as a metaphor for our hearts and minds. We put them in a barrel full of coarse grit And we churn the barrel for days or weeks or months, however long we're on retreat, until our sharp edges get smoothed out. Our roughness is gradually polished away until our natural beauty emerges. We might think of this as our Buddha nature, as is talked of in the later Buddhist tradition. So I use that analogy because for all of us here on retreat, this process is already happening. Whether we're aware of it or not, these parami are growing in us little by little, day by day. And you might recognize this when I read the full list of what they are in a moment. And as you hear them, you might like to just notice with each one if there's any perhaps subtle response in the body or the heart or the mind. Perhaps with some of the qualities, there'll be a felt sense of recognition. For others, perhaps the opposite, a little bit of a resistance. And for some, perhaps not much response at all. That's fine. Just notice whatever is true for you 
as possibly useful information to contemplate later. So here's the list in English and Pali. The first one is generosity or dana. Ethical integrity or sila, keeping the precepts. Renunciation or relinquishment, nekama. Wisdom or panya. Energy, virya. Patience, kanti. Truthfulness, satcha. Resolve or determination, adatana. Kindness, metta. And equanimity, upeka. So in her last talk, Caroline focused on the parami of resolve or determination. And tonight I'd like to focus on one that for... Some people might seem a little abstract, remote, perhaps even hard to recognize. And this is the parami of wisdom, wisdom or panya. And I wanted to talk about this one in particular because it's so crucial. Without some initial spark of wisdom, some sense that there has to be a better way to live our lives, none of us would have got started on this path. So wisdom is the beginning of this journey, and it's also the end result. Everything we're doing here is aimed at developing clear seeing, insight, so that we can live with greater ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. In English, though, the word wisdom can sound, at least to my ears, a bit sort of lofty or remote or even cerebral. And I think many of us tend not to think of ourselves as being wise. But again, one of the benefits of exploring this list of the parami is that just that recognition helps them to grow. So if you'd like to experiment with doing this as a practice while you're on retreat here, then at the end of each day, you might just run through the list and take a moment to contemplate each quality and just just to check and see, how was the generosity today? How was the ethical conduct, the relinquishment, the wisdom, and so on? And even just tuning in for a moment or two to acknowledge each of these qualities in turn can bring them more fully into consciousness. It strengthens them so that they can become resources for our journey. So specifically in relation to wisdom, I feel like I can say with confidence that every one of us here this evening has some substantial degree of wisdom or you just you wouldn't even be here at the forest refuge. So before I speak a bit more specifically about wisdom in the context of the Buddha's teachings, I'd like to just explore more generally how this process of developing wisdom is happening for every one of us here, whether or not we consciously recognize it. 
So again, with particularly with the parami of wisdom, it's a process. And one of the challenges of translating the Pali word panya as wisdom is that in English, wisdom is a noun. So it can sound like a static quality, something that we either have or we don't have. And I think there's a common belief that some people are just born wise and, well, some people just aren't. And so for myself, when I heard, first heard the Buddha's teachings that wisdom is something that can be cultivated, it felt very empowering. So in English, wisdom is a noun, and it can sound like a fixed thing that we have to get. And I used to think that wisdom meant basically putting a lot of facts in my brain and then trying to arrange them into complicated ideas. That's part of the way I think our education system tends to think of wisdom. In Pali, by comparison, the literal translation of the word panya is to know correctly. So wisdom is a verb, not a noun. And to me, at least, trying to know correctly seems a bit more achievable than trying to be wise. Because knowing is something we can do and that we can train in. So how do we do wisdom? How do we train ourselves in discernment? In the Buddha's teachings, this development of wisdom is seen as a gradual one. And it's said to progress through three distinct stages or levels. The first is wisdom acquired through learning. The second is wisdom acquired through reflection. And the third is wisdom acquired through meditation. So the first of these three, wisdom acquired through learning, is the understanding that comes from hearing the teachings or reading books or being given instructions by a Dharma teacher. And it's also sometimes described as borrowed understanding because we get it from someone else to begin with. And it's mostly a more intellectual understanding and it's mostly about getting knowledge And while this level of wisdom definitely can help inspire us to follow a spiritual path, in itself it doesn't usually lead to liberation. So in the Zen tradition, these three levels of wisdom are said to be located in different parts of the body. So this first level of understanding is associated with the head. It's an intellectual knowledge and it hasn't yet translated into wise action. So perhaps you've had an experience of having a good intention to do something, but somehow you just can't seem to follow through and act on it. That nice idea just doesn't translate into lived reality. And this is because the wisdom hasn't yet ripened, hasn't yet penetrated more deeply into our understanding. But with time and with practice, this more intellectual understanding can ripen to the next level, which is wisdom acquired through reflection. And this comes from contemplating a teaching for ourselves, trying it out in the context of our own lives to see if it's really true, beneficial or not. And when we do this, it matures into an applied wisdom. It's not just theoretical anymore. 
So this shift from intellectual to applied understanding isn't always easy. Again, as I've been pointing to, many of us are conditioned to value the intellect more than practical experience. And so again, in my own practice, it took quite a long time before I stopped listening to Dharma talks the way I used to listen to classes in high school. In fact, I think it was on my first three-month retreat at IMS that at some point I realized, oh, the teachers aren't just giving us a few nice ideas to think about before we go to bed with these Dharma talks. They're actually asking us to do something with this information. So it's a bit embarrassing that it took me so long to recognize that we're supposed to do something with the information that's being offered here because the Buddha himself was really clear about the need to try out the teachings for ourselves. So many of you are probably familiar with the famous discourse to the Kalama people when they were confused about what kind of teachings to follow. And he told them not to take on any teachings, not even the Buddha's own teachings, unless they had tried them out in their own lives and found them to be helpful. So this is what he's reported to have said. Now, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. So that's pretty clear. We need to, quote, adopt and carry out the teachings so that we can see for ourselves whether they're useful or not. And when we do this using the Zen model, we've moved to a more heart level of understanding. Wisdom has moved further down from the head, down the body, to become more centered, more central to who we are. And at this stage, we don't have to think quite so hard about a particular teaching. We just know the truth of it more intuitively. Then, beyond this second level of wisdom, there's an even deeper one, and that's the wisdom that comes from meditation, from directly experiencing the truth of the teachings for ourselves. And when we start to really experience the teachings on this level, they can become endlessly fascinating. And if you think back over your own practice, I'm guessing you probably have all had some experience of this shift from a more intellectual understanding to deeper and deeper levels of intuitive, heart-centered wisdom. So, for example, you might have had the experience of thinking that you understood an aspect of the Dharma quite deeply. And then at some point you went on retreat and you realized, oh, that's what they meant. I didn't get it really before, but yeah, now, now I definitely do. 
And then maybe a few weeks or months go by, the understanding gets integrated, you go on retreat, and then you realize, oh, now I've really got it. I wasn't seeing it clearly before at all, but this time I really understand. And then next retreat, wow, this is what they meant. What I was, what I was seeing before wasn't it at all. This time I've really, really got it. So maybe you've had that experience of just how the, as we keep integrating, contemplating, practicing with this wisdom, it goes in on deeper and deeper levels. So metaphorically, now it's moved even further down the body to the gut. And in English, we talk about knowing something in our gut, or even more deeply, knowing something in our bones. So this type of wisdom is a deeply embodied wisdom, and we don't even have to think about it anymore. It's just part of who we are, of how we show up in the world. And this ripening of wisdom happens as a very natural, organic process, if we let it. So by applying effort, as we all are, to develop our sati and samadhi, our continuous mindfulness, stable, focused attention, insights quite naturally arise and progressively deepen. So that's a fairly general overview of how wisdom develops over the lifetime of our practice. So now I'd like to get a little bit more specific about what wisdom means in the context of the Buddha's teachings. And this is where it can get a bit challenging because, as Caroline mentioned the other night, the Buddha's teachings are like blancmange or jello or pudding. Perhaps that's not such an elegant metaphor in some ways, but it conveys the sense that it's really impossible to separate these teachings out. No matter where we start, each piece of the Dharma brings all the others in with it because Like fractal geometry, each fragment of the teachings contains the whole. Whether we zoom in close or pan out wide, the same patterns of truth keep emerging. So tonight I'm going to start this exploration of wisdom by taking just one aspect of the teachings, the understanding of the four noble truths. As you know, these are four key practice statements that lie at the heart of all of the Buddha's teachings. Then within the Four Noble Truths, I'm going to zoom into just the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness or suffering. And then within that first noble truth, I'm going to zoom into just one aspect of that, the five aggregates subject to clinging. And these, very briefly, are five categories of experience that we tend to hold on to and identify with, namely material form, feeling tone, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. If you're not familiar with that terminology, don't worry. I'm going to touch into it again later in the talk. But within that list of the five aggregates, I'm going to zoom in to just the first one, material form, and look specifically at our bodies. And then within the body, I'm going to zoom in even further to the understanding of impermanence, anicca. 
So that's a lot of zooming. So if you're feeling a bit dizzy, don't worry. I'm not going to try and cover everything I just mentioned in detail in this one talk. I'll try to break it down into manageable pieces and spread it over a few talks and perhaps also some of the morning reflections. Okay, so coming back to where I said I'd start, wisdom as an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. I think all of you probably have at least some familiarity with these truths. So very briefly, first noble truth, simple statement, usually translated as there is dukkha, stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. The second noble truth, also very simple, there is a cause of dukkha or suffering. The third noble truth, there is an end of suffering. And the fourth noble truth, there is a path that leads to the end of suffering, namely the noble eightfold path. So these four noble truths might sound very simple, but understanding them and discovering the transformative wisdom that they contain is really a lifetime project. So for now, I just want to highlight that each of these truths is inviting us to look more carefully at our relationship to suffering, to dukkha. Dukkha being also translated as stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness. So the first two truths are about acknowledging that there is dukkha and it has a cause. Well, the last two truths point out that it's possible to be free of dukkha and how to achieve that. And I want to really emphasize that the point of this is to move towards freedom, towards ease and happiness and peace. Because again, based on my own experience of hearing these Four Noble Truths early on in my practice, I tended to hear them something like this, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering. Because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, there was this tendency to hear the word suffering and lose sight of the fact that this is all about releasing suffering on deeper and deeper levels, which brings us closer to nibbana, the heart-mind completely free of greed, hatred, and ignorance. So getting to know dukkha is not an exercise in masochism, as people sometimes think. So remembering the slogan that I've referred to a few times now, if it's in the way, it is the way. Dukkha can really be an impetus for the whole unfolding of this path. Because if we can approach dukkha with wisdom, then instead of being an obstacle, it becomes a vehicle for our liberation. And the first step in that whole process of transformation is to understand dukkha. So the Buddha's definition of dukkha in the first noble truth, this is based on a translation by Tanasaro Bhikkhu. Now this, practitioners, is the noble truth of stress. Stress being how he translates dukkha. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unloved is stressful. 
Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So there's a lot in those few lines. Just to unpack them a little bit, the description of dukkha begins with its most basic aspect, just the physical reality of being a human being. Because we're born into a human body, we're subject to aging, to illness, to death. And none of us are immune from these processes. We're born, we get old, we die. And on one level, this is so obvious. It almost wonder why we would even need to say it. But very few of us live life with that understanding. Quite the opposite. Most of us live in as much denial of those facts as we can. So I'll come back to that point later. But for now, just to move on to the next level of dukkha in the Buddha's definition, he goes from the physical stress of having a body to the mental and the psychological stress of being in the world, the sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair that we're all subject to, at least at times, often brought on by not getting what we want, as the sutta says. And then this definition of dukkha also includes a relational or social aspect because it also includes the stress of being separated from people and things we love, and having to be with people and things that we loathe. So even if by good fortune we've managed to escape some of the more intense aspects of dukkha, like illness, accident, and so on, most of us at some stage experience the relational dukkha of separation from the loved or association with the unloved. So this definition of dukkha is pretty comprehensive. It includes the physical, the psychological, the relational domains of life. But then, just in case all the bases haven't been covered, the Buddha ends with a summary statement. In short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So as promised, I've zoomed in from the Four Noble Truths to just this first one noble truth of dukkha, and now moving into the five clinging aggregates, which again are material form, feeling tone, perceptions, volitional mental formations, and consciousness. And these are five aspects of our experience that the Buddha highlighted because they're ones that we commonly cling to and therefore suffer. And that's why he presents these five clinging aggregates in some ways, as shorthand for dukkha as a whole. So keeping in mind, though, that the five aggregates are not in and of themselves a problem. The problem is our clinging to them. So what is meant by clinging in this context? It's in some ways shorthand for any kind of holding on, grasping, craving, or identifying with experience. In other words, taking it personally, having it define me, define who I am. And it also includes any kind of resistance to experience, pushing it away, rejecting, avoiding, or denying it. So clinging is a kind of an umbrella term for any kind of reactivity, 
either for or against our experience. And then the opposite of clinging, which is what our practice is aiming for, is release. So release refers to letting go, to allowing, to letting be, to non-entanglement. And again, this release happens on deeper and deeper levels. And ultimately, it leads all the way to the peace of Nibbana, awakening. So in my own practice, I sometimes have condensed the Four Noble Truths into just these two aspects, these two movements of clinging and release. So the first and second noble truths describe the problem of clinging, and the third and fourth noble truths describe how to attain release. So condensing the four noble truths into these two movements makes them simple to practice with in some ways. So to get a sense of this, you might experiment as you're going about your day If you happen to recognize any kind of suffering, then that's probably a sign that you've got got caught in clinging. So you might notice on the bodily level, is there some kind of tightness or tension, contraction, stiffening, resisting, bracing against or closing down of some kind. Those are all physical symptoms of clinging. It might show up more in the heart-mind in terms of emotions of liking or disliking, wanting or not wanting, desire, anger, judgment, self-judgment, and so on, which then often proliferate into thought storms of worrying or restlessness, planning, fantasizing, daydreaming, rumination, obsession, and so on. So learning to recognize the symptoms of clinging is the crucial first step. Because unless we can clearly see what's going on, we can't do anything about it. And as most of you know, seeing clearly is one of the definitions of the Pali word vipassana, usually translated as insight. I understand, though, that vipassana can be more literally translated as seeing separately or seeing distinctly. And this links us back to the five aggregates. So remember how I said that all of this is like fractal geometry. These patterns and connections keep appearing and reappearing. So in many ways, insight practice vipassana is training us to look at our experience separately and distinctly. Because when we can break it down into the individual components of what's happening... Each component is usually a bit easier to stay present with than the whole show where we tend to get lost and get identified with the experience. So, I hope you're staying with me a little, to some extent. It might be sounding a bit abstract, so I wanted to try to make it more practical now and zoom into the first of the five aggregates, material form. Specifically, the aspect of material form that most of us have quite some degree of clinging to, tendency to identify with, and that's the body, our own physical bodies. And there is just that basic biological sense that I am my body, it's me, it's mine. 
And on top of that basic delusion, we add the further delusion that my body is solid, it's permanent, and it's under my control. As an antidote to that delusion, in the insight tradition, the Satipatthana Sutta invites us to pay closer attention to the body, to see it more clearly. So in the first establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, we're really invited to know the body from within, instead of our usual way of thinking about it as an object that's under our control. So we practice getting to know physical experiences just as they are, without adding our usual habitual reactions, assessments, judgments, analyses, beliefs, and views about the experience. So here are some of the actual instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta. Here, practitioners, in regard to the body, a practitioner abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. Mindfulness that there is the body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body. So I included that passage because sometimes when people hear the instructions to just be with bodily experience, the question comes up, but why? And some of the benefit, I think, is, comes out in that statement, that when we can stay with just the immediacy of our physical sense-based experience, when we can let that fill the mind, there's no room for greed and distress and aversion to arise. And we can abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And this too is an aspect of the release that I was just talking about. But especially for those us who have grown up in dominant mainstream culture, we've been conditioned to separate the body and the mind And remembering that the term clinging can also refer to resisting, ignoring, denying. Most of us have been trained to privilege the intellect more than the body. And in this hierarchy, the body is seen as inferior, almost a kind of a dumb appendage that just transports the brain from A to B. So in my Dharma talk the other night, I mentioned how Often these days we tend to relate to ourselves as if we were machines or computers and think we should just be able to stop and start and plug and unplug at will. And we override or ignore the basic biological and organic nature of our bodies, which only creates more stress, distress, and dukkha. So Reggie Ray is a Western teacher in the Tibetan tradition, and he writes about this crisis of disembodiment very clearly. He says, for most of us and for most of modern culture, the body is principally seen as the object of our ego agendas, the donkey 
for the efforts of our ambitions. The donkey is going to be thin. The donkey is going to be strong. The donkey is going to be a great yoga practitioner. The donkey is going to look and feel young. The donkey is going to work 18 hours a day. The donkey is going to help me fulfill my needs, and so on. All that's necessary is the right technique. There is no sense that the body might actually be more intelligent than me, my precious self, my conscious ego. And he goes on to say, for me and for many people I know, there's a kind of divine intervention that arrives at our doorstep and calls us back into our body. This can take many forms, injury, illness, extreme fatigue, impending old age, sometimes emotions, feelings, anxiety, anguish or dread that we don't understand or can't handle. But at a certain point, we get pulled back into our body. One way or the other, something comes in, sometimes with a terrifying crash and begins to wake us up. So perhaps we can recognize in that quote just how deep our cultural conditioning is, how strongly many of us identify with our intellects at the expense of the poor beast of burden that is the body. So it's not surprising then that many of us struggle to be aware of the body. And then on top of that societal conditioning, Many of us have also had individual and collective experiences that leave us in fear for our bodies or of our bodies. Many people have experienced the trauma of violence or are challenged by illnesses and chronic health conditions. So in the beginning, the body is not necessarily somewhere that feels safe. But it is possible through this practice to gradually develop a wiser and kinder relationship with the body, no matter what state it's in. And when we're no longer at war with the body, we can inhabit it more fully. And then we can make use of the embodied wisdom that it offers us as a resource on the path to freedom. So most of us, though, have to train in developing a wiser and more sane relationship to our bodies, to live more in harmony with the truth of its impermanence and vulnerability instead of denying it. And it's true that on one level we do have a very primal survival instinct that wants to protect our physical bodies. That's completely natural and necessary. So it's not surprising then that when we're reminded of the body's impermanence and vulnerability, it can be quite disturbing. But the more we can train in accepting our body's fragile nature, the less we suffer. So as an example of how disturbing the fragility of the body can be, when I was about 14 or 15, I was running along the beach near where I was living in New Zealand at the time, And there had recently been a high tide that had washed away a lot of sand, so the shape of the beach had changed. And there was a lump of rock that was newly exposed, which I didn't see. And I ran right into it and whacked my foot pretty hard, hard enough that it was bleeding quite badly. 
So I kind of limped down to the water to wash the blood away. And as I did, I noticed a whole toenail just floating off out to sea. And I can still remember that sort of visceral sense of shock and disorientation, realizing my body's fragility and its capacity to disintegrate. Now, of course, this is a pretty minor example of what can happen, what can go wrong with our bodies. And at that time, it was pretty disturbing. But more recently, I had to have a series of pretty high-tech medical tests for a potentially serious health condition, which turned out not to be anything serious at all. But before I got the final all clear over the six weeks of all these tests, I was interested to notice that other people seemed to be more anxious about my condition than I myself was. And it was, I was a little, I was happy to see, at least in that situation, I'm not saying it will always be true, but in that situation, there was more acceptance of the body's fragility than there had been when I lost my toenail. So we tend to cling to the delusion that our bodies are solid and invulnerable, and we cling to the delusion that our bodies are permanent not susceptible to aging and illness and death. And when these delusions are threatened by reality, that's when we often experience the clinging most strongly. For example, all the ways we resist the truth of our body's impermanence by trying to hold on to our youth, our health, our physical attractiveness, our fitness, or our sexual energy. And as clinging happens individually, but also on a society-wide scale, we see the preference for youth and beauty and fitness and sexual attractiveness in the media and in advertising and in all the industries that grow up around them, cosmetics and plastic surgery, bodybuilding, pharmaceuticals, medical tourism, on and on and on. There are infinite ways that we're supposed to try to control and enhance our bodies through diet and exercise and cosmetics and so-called procedures and so on. And for many people, this identification with the body takes up a huge amount of time and energy. So a few years ago when I was visiting England, I would sometimes go on long train trips to visit relatives outside of London And often these trains would be filled with commuters who were spending many hours traveling to work. And quite often I'd watch people get on the train with small crates of cosmetics and they'd spend an hour and a half, two hours applying their makeup. And I would get exhausted just watching them spending all that time looking at themselves in the mirror and applying all these different products to different parts of their faces And there was also compassion because I think all of us have some strategies of how we try to improve and control our bodies, whether it's cosmetics or working out at the gym or buying lots of clothes or spending a fortune on supplements. And in naming those things, it's not that we're supposed to go to the other extreme and just neglect our health or stop taking care of the body and pay no attention to hygiene or grooming because, well, it's all going to die anyway. It's not the activities themselves that are the problem. 
It's the degree of clinging to them that's the issue. So if there's that unconscious belief that I can just paint the perfect face or sculpt the perfect body and then I'll live happily ever after, that leads to suffering when the body inevitably ages, gets injured, sick, let alone when it starts dying. So it might sound like a paradox, but the way out of this suffering is through it. So the wisdom here is about training now to come into more direct contact with the truth of the body's impermanence. And if we pay attention, we can see very clearly that our physical sensations are constantly changing. Only our concepts about the body are static. So for example, right now, if you close your eyes and you just bring awareness to your hand, what do you actually experience? Is there a thing that you can identify as hand? Or is that just a label that we apply as a visual image or a memory to where we think the hand should be? If we let go of the idea of hand and just connect with the direct experience of that region of the body, probably all we'll find are sensations, perhaps tingling, warmth, pressure, hardness, softness, twitching, and so on. And the more we keep releasing our concepts about the body, the more we come closer to the truth of its impermanent, impersonal nature, the truth that there's nothing unchanging, solid, nothing controllable to be found anywhere in this experience that we call my body. And the Buddha was very explicit about training to see the body's insubstantial nature. In the Fena Sutta, he uses an analogy comparing the first aggregate of material form to a lump of foam. So as you hear the words of the sutta, just keep in mind that our bodies are aspects of material form. So it said, on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying among the Iogens on the banks of the Ganges River. There he addressed the monastics. Monastics, suppose that a large glob of foam were floating down this Ganges River, and a person with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To that person, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a glob of foam? In the same way, a monastic sees, observes, and appropriately examines any form that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To that person, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in form? So what the Buddha is pointing to here is something that has only recently been recognized by modern science. 
using high-tech instruments such as the electron scanning microscope, scientists have been able to document the body's radical insubstantiality and changeability. So I'd like to read you a description of what scientists have been discovering about the body because to me it captures some of the mystery and the magnificence of our own organic nature. It says, the electron scanning microscope with the power to magnify several thousand times takes us down into a realm that has the look of the sea about it. As the magnification increases, the flesh begins to dissolve. Muscle fiber now takes on a fully crystalline aspect. We can see that it's made of long spiral molecules in orderly array. And all of these molecules are swaying like wheat in the wind, connected with one another and held in place by invisible waves that pulse many trillion times a second. What are the molecules made of? As we move closer, we see atoms, the tiny shadowy balls dancing around their fixed locations in the molecules, sometimes changing position with their partners in perfect rhythm. And now we focus on one of the atoms. Its interior is lightly veiled by a cloud of electrons. We come closer, increasing the magnification. The shell dissolves and we look on the inside to find nothing. Somewhere within that emptiness we know is a nucleus. We scan the space, and there it is, a tiny dot. At last, we've discovered something hard and solid, a reference point. But no, as we move closer to the nucleus, it too begins to dissolve. It too is nothing more than an oscillating field, waves of rhythm. Inside the nucleus are other organized fields, protons, neutrons, even smaller particles. Each of these, upon our approach, also dissolves into pure rhythm. Of what is the body made? It is made of emptiness and rhythm. As the ultimate heart of the body, at the heart of the world, there is no solidity. Once again, there is only the dance. So fortunately, as meditators, we don't need an electron microscope to understand the body in that way. If we develop enough mindfulness and concentration, sati and samadhi, we can know the body's lack of solidity and its radical impermanence very directly in our own experience. And this clear seeing into the truth of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unreliability and not-self is a doorway into transformative wisdom, helping us to let go of clinging and to release into peace. So may we all directly experience the natural wisdom of the body and may we know peace. Thank you for your attention.
Let's just sit for one quiet moment before we chant the sharing of blessings. 